0: Good when we're back popping That's in, um, sex,
1: so good You've been to plenty corners of the world. Still
2: Hello. Find yourself My like name, the name is Nicholas McInerney. Girl. I'm a playwright and lecturer. Ten years ago, I came out. I had been married for nearly 20 years and had two daughters. It was both terrifying and exhilarating. I was about to set out on a journey from one world to another where I was to reinvent myself or maybe to find out finally who I really was. I decided for the first time in my life to keep a diary. I wrote furiously, without censoring myself, straight from the heart. Ten years on, I want to invite you to come on that journey with me again. Each of these podcasts will include diary entries, and a discussion all about our shared experiences coming out as gay and bisexual men, dads, husbands and partners. Of course, we understand that reliving the past can inevitably bring up conflicting feelings of distress and pain for children and former partners. This is clearly not our intention. We also understand that personal memories are often disputed. We take responsibility for any factual inaccuracies. Names have also been changed throughout. Despite all this, we hope and believe that Rainbow Dads makes an important contribution to a healing process of understanding and self-acceptance. And by sharing our lives, we hope to include yours. Thank you. The 12th of September, 2006. So here goes. Last Friday, the 8th of September, I got home from having attended the Burning Man Festival in Nevada. It has been an overwhelmingly intense and shattering experience. I tell people it has been one of the most extraordinary weeks of my life, and it's true. At the moment, I don't quite know where to put myself. I can be both extraordinarily happy and absolutely miserable, often both within hours. I find myself wanting to cry at times. I want to talk about it constantly, as if to prove to myself that it actually happened. On the other hand, I want to sit and be very quiet too, collecting my thoughts. So, so what's the reason for all this? I went to Burning Man with many unresolved issues in my head around my sexuality. Was I gay or straight? Was I bisexual? So will anything be the same again? Is this just a glorious moment or the beginning of something more profound? I feel it is. In the same way, I feel deep concern for the future. From my daughters, Naomi, fifteen, and Ella, twelve, but especially for my wife Kay, who has to cope with it all. But above all of these things, I feel tremendous relief and release. Years of nailing my heart down and just not being truthful to myself, not being honest, not being me. Hello. My name's Nicholas, and I'm a gay dad, and I'm here with a group of other gay dads to talk to you about our lives, our experiences, and our journeys. I'd like to introduce my fellow gay dads, and I'd like to start with you, Arnett. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm Arnett. Uh, I came out
1: nine years ago. Uh, I have four children, and I have had Two relationships with women, so I have two children from both relationships. Professionally, I'm a teacher, and that's a big part of my story.
3: Great. David. So I'm David. Um, uh, I've got two grown up sons one's 21, one's 17. Um, the 17 year old lives with me, uh, the 21 year old lives in London. Um, my ex wife and I are still very close, we have a, a very close relationship.
0: Um, and yes, so that's me. Thank
2: you. Thank you,
0: Alex. Hi, I'm Alex. I I'm, uh, came out about five years ago after 27 years, married to the first person I ever went out with. Oh. Um, I have two kids, a 21-year-old who lives with me and a 17-year-old who lives with me half the time. Um, in profession, I have been a vegan chef for the last three years, but I'm going back into what I started with, which was business consultancy.
2: Great. Thank you. And Deep.
0: Good morning. I'm Deep, and
4: I um, I came out about eight years ago. I have two teenage daughters, uh, and uh, they are both accepting of my sexuality as bisexual. Um, yes, yeah, so that's me.
2: Grand. Thank you very much. Finally, I should say, uh, as Nicholas, I'm, I have two daughters, 27 uh, and 24, Uh, I came out about just over 10 years ago, actually more than 10 years ago, when I was 45, so 12 years ago, uh, and I had been married for nearly 20 years, and I'm still pretty close uh, with my wife, uh, who has remarried, which is fantastic. Okay. Uh, In this first podcast, I thought that it would be terrific to look at very early years as we were growing up, because obviously different ages, different life experiences, um, an awareness of what LGBT meant uh, at that early age, uh, and uh, and the kind of messages that we were being given as young boys as we were growing up. Um, perhaps I'll start and uh, I'll just give a little bit of sense of where I my experiences with this, and and you, and then then we can talk about you guys. I uh, came from a very middle class family uh, in the home counties, in a place called Bishop Stortford in Hertfordshire. I'm the oldest of four boys. Interestingly enough, my second brother is also gay uh, and he came out a long time before I did. And that's something maybe to look at in future podcasts because obviously that had an impact on my journey. Um, uh, I went to local schools, but I was sent off to a, a boarding public school when I was 11 and I was there from 11 till Uh, 17, 18. And I had a a number of intense sexual relationships at the school. But as soon as a boy said to me that he'd fallen in love with me, I was absolutely bloody terrified. Terrified because that was a kind of a a whole different thing. Um, So uh, this is during the 1970s. uh, And the atmosphere at the school was intensely homophobic. It was a single sex school. It was in the famous words of um, Rupert Everett and... um, Another country, everybody was at it, but nobody wanted to admit to it. And the the few boys that did were completely socially ostracized. So it was a very, very difficult atmosphere. I remember spending one half term on a camping holiday with my parents, convinced I was gay in an absolute agony of of conflict and terror, basically, about being discovered. Um, My father had gone to the same public school uh, and so that was interesting. So he'd obviously had some experience of that himself, but my mother actually was rather homophobic. Um, and uh, and that became a real issue when my brother came out. But in brief, that's my kind of background. Does anyone particularly relate to that experience?
0: Yes, there's some things that chime in there, Nicholas. Um, I also went to boarding school when I was 11 uh, after my mum's marriage to my second stepfather. So the 11 years, of the start of my life were turbulent. Uh, We moved around a lot and I can honestly say it set the scene for what happened because when I went to boarding school, um, there was a lot of implicit homophobia and homosexual activity, which was sort of exciting and also interesting, but I didn't get involved in that. Um, I did have a massive crush on my first guy when I went to public school at about 14, 15. He's absolutely gorgeous. I think he's now a brigadier in the army, so it uh, <laughs> <laughs> could have been very amusing and interesting. Um, I had the crush, I, you know, it was genuine, it was real. And the same year, I think partly because of the childhood I'd had, I found very much very much drawn to um, joining a Christian group, which then gave me this fork in my life which defined everything else afterwards. So joining a, a evangelical Anglican group really just cut down you know shut down anything that you could possibly imagine in terms of being gay even though I knew it was all out there and probably you know 5, 10, 20 years later would have easily and comfortably identified as gay at 15.
2: I was going to say was joining that group a way of allowing yourself to avoid having to deal with your sexuality? Definitely
0: not Um, it was I think you know looking for framework and certainty after uh, 11 years of confusion and turmoil in sort of emotional terms. And I think you know, it was looking for friendship and looking for love and affection. That uh, When you're a 14 year old boy in a boys boarding school, there are obvious ways you can get that, but actually I chose a very safe way rather than a perhaps more true to life way.
2: Between the ages of 11 and 14, we're vile, aren't we? We're absolutely vile. And I, that, you know, the moment at my boarding school when somebody said Nicholas as opposed to McInerney, Was like a blinding moment of friendship. I really remember that because from 11, we were terrible. We bullied each other mercilessly and we were incredibly competitive and it was just fueled by this rampant testosterone. But then I was like. I think you went to a nastier
0: school (laughs) than I did. Did I? I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But it was that moment. I mean,
2: I've got friends now. I've got friends, but my closest friends, both straight, Mm. I've known for 45 years. And that's a friendship forged in the white heat of, of, of adversity, you know, so when I when you watch stuff about the army or whatever, you completely understand how that kind of band of brothers kind of comes together. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very interested in the, in the evangelical thing. Was that, um, in the school, was that something that was uh, looked on uh, with respect or frowned on? I mean, now people are much more cynical and critical about people who have faith. Um, but, but it seems to me that that at school, it could be a very powerful way of creating an identity for yourself.
0: I think it was very strong. The school I went to had a particular um, ethos around that, and it was a positive thing in terms of uh, having friends, um, having some sort of identity, having some sort of connection with people. But then it also closed down a lot of the emotional connection that you would normally evolve uh, in your teenage years, which I think boarding school also um, shuts down on in lots of very negative psychological ways. Um, I think the religious aspect was something that really caught me and appealed to me because it gave me a meaning to my life. Um, It took a long time uh, and it coincided with coming out at uh, 50. Uh, It took a long time for that religious aspect to to become something I could actually deal with and Mm. have dealt with it and have left my faith. I don't say I've lost it because that implies a mistake. I've put it down by the side of the road and walked on. For me, that's a very positive part of my Yeah, experience. no,
2: absolutely. Um, so, um, I was going to say, Nick, I, the religious bit,
1: I, I really identify mm, with, okay. with what you were saying because when I was at school in those secondary years, I got really involved in a Christian evangelical group that was led by one of the teachers in the school in a way that I don't think would actually be allowed and encouraged now, but Mm -hmm. then it was. And that linked into, you know, Christian activities that were happening outside of school that he was involved in as well. But for me, I don't think it connected directly to issues about my sexuality. But sitting here thinking about it now, it did connect to a sense of me feeling really confused about who I was and desperately in need of connection and a sense of identity, a sense of being able to say, this is who I am. Mm. And so I could say at that time, this
0: is me. I'm on it. I'm a Christian. Exactly. That's Ah. exactly what appealed to me. And then you get all of the... Other overlays of fundamentalism, wh- whichever fundamentalism it is, it's usually no sex, no sex before mm. marriage, yeah. no homosexuality. No, you know, mm. it's got to be very straight. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Tell us a bit more about your background on it, because you were talking to me on the uh, tube, yeah. and I literally the, the eyes are popping out of the back of my head. Mm. Uh, yes, tell me a bit about. So, them. I yeah, my my background very different to yours. Um,
1: fairly working class family, but maybe aspiring to middle class in that we owned their own home, Um, but it was a very troubled, difficult childhood. Uh, I grew up down in Cornwall and geographically quite remote, socially quite remote, uh, disconnected from all of the cultures. I can remember going to St. Ives with my family and St. Ives being the bohemian artist bubble. Of, yeah. of Cornwall. It's great, isn't it? It's, an and it's a wonderful place. My dad's looking at these hippie people and telling me that under no circumstances should I ever be like these people. And you know, going on to express that in really derogatory ways about them being gay and drug takers, etc. etc. And I can remember public toilets and the graffiti in public toilets and this fascination that I had with some of this quite explicit conversations. But my understanding of what was gay was so limited and something that I, in a way, didn't even think about. But it was colored by um, experiences with my dad. Um, My my father was quite an overbearing, aggressive man, very unhappy, quite depressed, um, but could be very violent. And for many, many years, and my earliest recollection was when I was four, he sexually abused me. And that went on until my early teens, to the point where I decided actually I wanted to stop this. And that coloured my experiences for years and years and years, and it took me a long time to understand the impact of that on me. The curious thing about it is that, in some ways, I enjoyed it. Mm. There were, yeah, you know, there was, you know, particularly as I moved towards my teenage years, the, just the stimulation of, of of being sexually aroused was pleasurable, and so I would know when this might happen, and I would not run away from it. So that left me with a sense of guilt, a sense of shame, a sense of responsibility for, for what happened. And I can remember in primary school, in the final year of primary school, standing in the bottom of the playground with a group of my, my friends, and one of the boys had brought in a girly magazine. <laughs> and it wasn't particularly hardcore, but, and all the boys were standing around really excited about this. And I can remember fading away from the group with embarrassment and shame because that was how my dad used to arouse me. He would show me these these porno magazines. And and so for me that just really connected into that and my sense of knowledge that I had about things. Uh, I can remember an, a, another boy in in the school showers going around proudly with an erection and a towel hung on his erection and everybody yeah. was laughing. Yeah. And again, I could feel my sense of embarrassment and shame and not knowing how to deal with this, because at this point I was starting to re- think, oh, my God, if I
2: say anything, they're going to think I'm gay. Absolutely. There's a feeling that if you... It's that wonderful thing about checking yourself that you feel if you reveal something, because I remember that experience at my uh, public school. Boys would walk around with you know huge erections, draping towels off it, and again I was kind of fascinated and revolted at the same time. And I too had a terrible crush. My first English teacher was a member of the Welsh rugby team. For goodness' <laughs> sakes! I mean Gareth Davis. I mean you know, <laughs> I'd say you know I was just like starry-eyed, the age of eleven, barely aware of how these feelings, but yeah. you know, uh, and uh, and again, my mother sat me down before I was sent off to school to tell me about boys who might drag me in the bushes and try and persuade me to do things. And of course, like you were describing with your father, part of that I thought found very very exciting. Mm. So when it happened, and technically I was abused at school, part of me. Part of me wanted to resist, but part of me also was was happy to be overpowered and taken along. Mm. So there was a sense in which I wanted to be passive
4: in that experience. What about you, Deep? So a very different experience. So in terms of identity, when I was growing up, um, I grew up in a Sikh family, um, Indian immigrant uh, family, fairly stable upbringing in that sense. But I was visibly different um, from everybody else in this uh, sort of white English environment that I grew up in. So... Um, if you talk about bullying, I was bullied for being different. Um, and if I, I was always questioned about, you know, differences such as my faith. And um, I almost had two identities. There was the, the Punjabi boy at home with his Sikh family life that went on. And then there was what felt like the the me that was presented to the world at school um, and to the real world. Um, so I already had this conflicting um, sort of identity in the sense of, um, why can't I be the same person wherever I am? Um, and it felt almost as though I had to adapt, depend my personality and the, the person I was according to the environment that I was in. Um, so in terms of sexuality, then um, I was attracted to boys uh, and girls. Um, I, I had, um, you know, so I thought it was a phase. It was something that I thought I didn't want to think about. It was something I felt as though I've just stored away for many years until I became an adult um, and thought it was okay to actually explore that little secret that I'd left inside me Um, and from a personal perspective um, I wanted to just try and focus on all the things I wanted to achieve like I wanted to go to university nobody in my family had done that before, and I didn't want anything to distract me I didn't want any think to discolor me in the sense of my anybody in my family saying oh look at him he he's he's let us down because I felt this huge expectation and I think it's an Asian thing where um you if you speak to anyone from Asia China uh Japan I- India anywhere they'll, they'll tell you that yeah you know, your family has expectations about what you yes. should be doing and how you should be living your life um and I I guess I had this sense of expe- expectation uh throughout my childhood and and certainly uh, while I was a, a younger adult.
2: Great. The double identity thing really strikes a chord, actually, this idea of kind of living a different life at home. Because I was a boarding school, when I went home, I literally was a recluse. You know, I sat in my room and, read, and ended up reading English at university, and I just read and read and read and read and read. Um, uh, David, how does it? What, what, from what we've been talking about, what strikes a chord with you? Uh, absolutely
3: the conflict of identity. <coughs> I mean, uh, because I... I sort of, I think when you're talking about religion, I sort of invented my own religion. Uh, I certainly had an icon and that was David Bowie. Mm. <laughs> and, and everything, my whole being was focused on that. So it was like a religion. And, and when you were talking about this, Alex, I just thought it strikes a chord, you know, that um, you have to sort of focus on something that gets you out of who you are uh, 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 and places it somewhere else. And, and I could get away with uh, being uh, 11, 12, 13, having my hair cut like Ziggy Stardust and being a bit flamboyant and, and hanging out with the girls. Um,
2: Do you remember the, the famous Starman uh, Top of the Pops, well, when he uh, leant over and he, he well, started
3: fellating Rick, Mick Ronson's guitar? Well, he, he put his arm around, yeah, it, yeah. around his shoulders. But um, I've seen that so many times since. I don't think I actually saw it at the time. Uh, but we all pretend that we did, even but, uh, if but, we didn't. <laughs> well, what I did see, I saw the uh, Life on Mars. Um, it wasn't video in those days, however, it was a, like a promo film uh, for the single Life on Mars. And I just thought, this is incredible. I mean, it was just as if an alien had landed on the yeah. planet. It was just unbelievable. And uh, I completely connected with his music and what he was saying and the whole persona that he was putting on and the fact that every year or two he could change his persona. So I thought, well, that's the way to go then. You know, I might quite fancy boys, but I also liked girls. I liked being in the company of girls. Mm. I had girlfriends. That wasn't, didn't seem to me to be an issue. Um, and strangely enough, something else occurred to me while, while the guys were talking. I remember um, watching Thunderbirds, the Jerry uh, Anderson puppet show, and having a crush on Lady Penelope. And actually, I can remember thinking, I'm going to marry Lady Penelope and I will divorce Lady Penelope.
2: (laughs) You'll marry her and then divorce her. I will marry
3: her and then I will divorce her. So uh, in my head, I'd got this sort of plan set out. And strangely enough, of course, that's what happened. I married my own version of Lady Penelope and got divorced. And And although when I married, certainly never thought that that would be the case, um, I'm sure this is a subject we'll come on to later, but it's strange that, you know, the things that happen in your childhood actually sort of set out a, a path for your future and your adult.
2: What was your schooling like? Because, I mean, when they talk about Bowie, I'm thinking public school, oh my God, David Bowie, I remember boys bunking off school to go to the station to station. The famous station to station tour with well, the white lights. Yes, well I did. And uh, in defiance of the headmaster, I thought that was the most. Ex- I didn't. I couldn't afford the tickets. I thought that was the most. Well, I did. I did thing. do that exact bon- thing. Well, done. And, well I, done.
3: and I was in the NME as one of the uh, um, Space Oddities famous. Um, Fantastic piece that. Uh, uh, was done on on some of the lookalikes who were there. So I was there in the paper. And then, of course, when I went back to school, everyone saw me. (laughs) So your cover was blown. (laughs) My my cover was blown. But it was, you know, I was treated, you know, not not with any sort of special treatment or anything, but um, I could hide what I was truly trying Mm. to um, express and um, you know, work out for myself, I could hide it behind this fascination with David Bowie, dressing like David Bowie, having my hair cut like David Bowie. Yes. Um, yes. So, you know, yeah. and people and people enjoyed that. Yes. And people liked to have me in their group. Yes. You know, so,
2: yes. I mean, in my school that we opened a theatre and suddenly I had access to uh, Michael Clark came down with Balleromba. Somebody said he has muscles in places where you haven't even got places. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Julie Dench and Ian McKellen came down to do Twelfth Night and the theatre was suddenly that focus. That was the. the, And also I got to meet girls because like you, I was fascinated in all boys school. Of course, girls are going to be exotic and extraordinary. And I had a couple of relationships with girls from the theatre. But truly, it was the theatre that offered that road, um, that way music and the theatre offered a road and a way out and a way to establish mm. identity. Does anyone else have anything particular? I mean, you talked about the evangelical Christian. That seems yeah. to be in a, to fulfill that kind of function for you. It, Alex.
0: it did, but it wasn't a satisfying function. Right. So I can honestly say that when I finally re-examined everything that had to go because it, I'd chosen it as a very conscious um, identity, uniform framework but it wasn't necessarily true to life. So that's not to knock or to abuse anybody else's idea of faith or where they come from. But for me, it was definitely a very negative decision because it shut everything down emotionally sexually, physically, mentally yes. for for quite a few years, maybe decades.
2: Yes, this experience uh, of uh, gay men who who come from a, a, a very committed religious background is actually something that I've 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 heard from a lot, quite a lot of other gay men talk about. Um, uh, Deep, tell me something about the effect of your religious background and how that kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, influenced or, or, or played out in terms of your burgeoning kind of sexuality.
4: So one of the challenges I had I guess with, with um, going to the Sikh temple and being involved in the Sikh community was that everything happened in Punjabi, which was the second language for me. So um, if you asked me about what does my faith believe in, I didn't know any of the answers because we were just you know they were preaching in Punjabi, which was a language that I could speak, but I didn't really intimately know the language and understand when it was being spoken in a religious context. Um, so it all felt very alien, actually, and I wanted to try and understand it and I wanted to get connected to it. Uh, but the difficulty I had was that most of the resources were available were in Punjabi, um, and my Punjabi was not at a level which I could uh, really penetrate the, uh, the level of understanding I needed. So uh, something like the Internet was an amazing thing for me in order to explore my faith and to understand more, because what I relied upon up until that point uh, essentially were encyclopedias in English which talked about Sikhism. To try and learn about what my my faith is about and what it preaches, and and then I had to then go tell everybody because people would always ask me these questions, which I didn't know the necessarily know the answers to. What does
2: Sikhism say about sexuality?
4: Um, so, so essentially, Sikhism talks about equality between all people. So we are all equal before God, regardless of our colour, faith, um, uh, sexuality, sex, uh, so uh, gender, anything. Mm-hmm. So it's equality uh, before God. Uh, We're all, um, we go through a cycle of birth and and death. So we believe in reincarnation um, and being in the human form gives you an opportunity to be able to release yourself from that cycle um, and end up in an eternal place. Um, But we don't really call it heaven because in Sikhism we talk about heaven and hell is on earth. Um, It's what you choose to make it. Uh, So so there's nothing explicit about sexuality um, uh, um, because we don't really have any written rules within our uh, scriptures um, which talk about sexuality at all. but you can only go by the fact that actually we're, if we're all equal, we're all equal in every respect. Um, so uh, the, the trouble that we have is obviously when the British came into India um, and then uh, imposed their Victorian ways on, on the people the people of the Sikh kingdom, um, everything had to conform to a Victorian view of life and mm. that ha- has ever since lingered in the uh, spirit. Because it's been part of the,
2: it's encoded in the legal system yeah. and all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And
4: it, and it, but also it's ingrained in the people as well, that way of living. So mm. it, the, ex, you know, the the British, when they came in, um, made us develop a, a Sikh code of conduct. Uh, so we didn't have a seat code of conduct until the 1920s because the British said, if you want to be considered a faith, then you must um, have a code of conduct. Codification, okay. Yeah, um, you know, so uh, things like the marriage ceremony and, and things like this were all then re- introduced in all in response to this because the British wouldn't accept us as a faith, even though they'd taken over our land and were ruling us. Um, so, 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 th- so all of that really um, is in the spirit of the Sikh people, in a sense. So, so there are people who don't understand this. So if I had to tell my mum, for example, uh, about Bisexuality—that uh, was a, a challenging conversation because I didn't know how to say those things in Punjabi. I wow, you didn't have, English. didn't have, actually have the words to say. Yeah, that. so my mum speaks English, but to try and explain something like this, you want to try and get to as close as you can to the person that you're trying to talk to. And for me, for my mum, her first language is Punjabi. So for me to talk to her, that would be the way through. Um, and I just uh, have never had the words, so I've had to try and explain it to, as clearly as I can. But uh, there's nothing available, really, to help me um, give give that message to, to her.
2: Well, well, thank you. Let's turn to kind of first awareness of of sexuality. I mean, Arnett had a very particular experience. I, when I went to primary school, I was very sexually precocious. I was experimenting with boys and girls from the age of about six or seven. I remember my mother catching me uh, with somebody in uh, at home. What were your experiences, uh, David, of, of of your first sort of awareness that you were? You were gay, bisexual, however you wish to kind of describe yourself. Uh,
3: About 10, I guess, uh, last year at junior school. Um, But I wouldn't, I didn't, I didn't put a label on it. I didn't think I was one thing or another. It was just, it was, uh, I can remember the occasion. It was was in the toilets with a boy and it was about Uh, kissing.
2: Wow, kissing.
3: Yeah, it was a need to be close i think that's
2: really interesting because for me it was all about wanking each other off the idea of actually kissing a boy yeah terrified me because that was really intimate
3: yeah yeah but maybe that's what i lacked at home mm. because my parents were you know uh, middle class uh edwardian type parents you know uh very strict uh, there wasn't any love shown um so what
2: are your, what messages were you getting from your parents about sex and sexuality
3: none at all None at all. I mean, they, they never showed any love between them. Uh, uh, no. And so that, you know, there was nothing. Uh, the, on, the only sort of visual aids I got was from television, and this was in the 70s. So it would be um, uh, Larry Grayson, uh, Dick Emery, all those sort of caricature gays. And I never and never have identified with that caricature of what it's it's so what?
2: interesting you say that, because you it's exactly my response because I remember sitting and watching those same programs. Tell you a program which did weirdly kind of turn me on, was it Cliff Richard? No, it wasn't Cliff Richard, of course. It wasn't Cliff Richard. He used to do these specials and they used to have a fantasy sequence where they'd go off to Egypt. Or to Rome, and suddenly there were these dancers dressed up in centurion outfits. <laughs> and I suddenly was watching the television screen with a lot more intensity than before, you know, because these were the kind of men that I found attractive. But I so relate to what you're saying, David. I mean, it yeah. was just, you know, bless them, you know, uh, uh, you know, Dick Omer, a- a- yes, yeah. um, John Inman, and how, yeah. you know, Molly Sugden is more of a gay icon than John Inman now. Yeah. Isn't that interesting with her, with her it, wet pussy? But, um, but, but it was. Yeah, so, so tell us a little bit more about that, because it was like there was nothing there.
3: There, there was then, nothing, yeah. no. I mean, it's really strange that these caricatures were uh, <coughs> on television, primetime television, huge audiences, and yet the were... Yeah, massive. Mass- yeah. We're talking we we're talking million, aren't oh, we? Oh, yeah. yeah. But homosexuality was never equal, equal to what this person was portraying. It was really weird. Um, but they were the only acceptable versions of differentness and yeah.
2: and I think actually I do think arguably that hasn't changed I mean you know we have bless Alan Carr and Graham Norton seem to follow on from that tradition mm. to put a man on television who looks like he actually fucks other men is still quite problematic and I, I mean, that's my argument yeah. from the media I mean maybe you can think of examples of gay presenters who do have that quality but actually I do think it's quite still quite a challenge to find somebody
0: they have to be safe don't they yeah Otherwise, yeah. I think we're getting Paul more of, of that openness
3: there. perhaps yeah. in sport, but not enough. When you think of, I don't know, like Tom Daly and people Gareth, like Gareth Thomas. Gareth Thomas, I mean, rugby, who are real men.
2: And rugby is famously gay friendly. I've tried to sell an idea to radio about a gay rugby yeah. team. Yeah. Rugby is gay friendly and accepting in a way that football cannot, cannot, mm. even does not even begin. I think, yeah, we will, will get there. Eventually. Anyway, do, moving on. Interesting,
1: oh, no. I'm, I'm listening to this, and, and yes, there were all those, you know, and I, I liken them to pantomime
0: mm. characters. Mm. And yeah, absolutely.
1: I don't think I even entertained the thought that these people were gay, actually. No. They were just yeah. these yeah. strange pantomime yeah. characters. But I do remember <laughs> my mum used to have one of these mail order catalogues K's catalogues yeah. yeah and and i can remember l- spending a lot of time looking at the men's underwear section and actually it did excite me and it was just like excite- why france yeah why fronts, yeah, yeah. bridget jones men's and underwear yeah. and, uh-huh. and then yeah as soon as somebody came in through and quickly closing it <laughs> or moving to the toys section <laughs> in the <laughs> catalog um yeah. And, so, and and likewise when we were out shopping in the department stores in Marks and Spencer's, yeah, just getting overly interested in those pictures of in the men's underwear sections. Were they these. wearing white underwear? Yeah, always white, especially in Marks and Spencer's. Yeah. And Sorry. and just the, the sheepishness of, of glancing at this and, and I, I I look
0: back now and I think, Why the hell didn't I know? I, yeah, uh, my, um, my experience of pornography is quite interesting in this respect because I'm pretty sure my stepdad left some porn mags, in, like in the dustbin, but on the top, totally clean. And I was about 11, you know, and I saw them and obviously, you know, when my parents were out, whoosh, whoosh, mm. shuffle those away. What was interesting was, I don't know if this is intentional because he's a pretty homophobic man. Um, there was also a, a play girl. Obviously my mum had looked at. And there was a double spread of John Inman lying naked mm. on a rug. Yeah. Oh, did and anyone actually quite positive image for me, even though a John Inman on T V wasn't so yeah. my
2: mum had cosmopolitan for a while and I always remember the Burt Reynolds. I mean, here remember the Burt Reynolds <laughs> yeah. centre spread? He was gorgeous. He was then. Uh, yeah. He was then. <laughs> he was gorgeous. Have you seen Deliverance? He's, no, he, no. oh you've not seen Deliverance no, no. oh he's pretty fucking gorgeous in that and he's wearing lots of you know anyway but do you um, remember those <laughs>
1: that, that that movement of the German health and fitness yes, <laughs> yes and my dad yeah. had health lots, and efficiency I think that's yeah called. my dad had you know a number of Magazines with yeah. those sorts of pictures in, and I do remember looking at them, and and it was the guys I would look
2: at. Yes. There was a um, they were always big, holding a ball, weren't they? <laughs> About yeah. to playing ball yeah. in the nudist. I remember
0: spot. that you've just said, it reminded me of something. It was really quite important. There was this a big sort of four hundred page poster book of the pinup, the history of the pinup, that my parents had, and I was always looking at towards the end, sort of 60s, seventies onwards. There were couples and and nudist movements and pictures mm. of. And yeah, it was positive yeah. getting those little snippets of information, even though I didn't act on them. Yeah, it was quite a positive experience.
2: Yes, I always remember we found a porn mag at school and we all rushed up to the rugby pitch, you know, and had a washable <laughs> cover <laughs> and all of that, you know. And it was terribly exciting. It was like hidden, you know, foreign currency. It was like something really exciting, not gay porn. Um, and now, of course, and uh, retro porn seems very popular. Tom of Finland, for example, They're that whole kind of Look, how about you, Deep? In terms of your own sexual awakening, what was what? what can you remember things that that <laughs> were doing things to you or making you feel a certain way?
4: No. So, so as I say, essentially, I tried to ignore my feelings for. for for guys just because when I looked at um, people who I thought were gay uh, there was there was nobody I could connect with so you had people like Elton John for example he wore big glasses and I thought they would look ridiculous I wouldn't (laughs) want to do that I can't sing or play the piano Um, boy George who wore makeup and I didn't want to wear makeup and you know um, so there was nobody I could really connect with so I tried really just to ignore it and to push it away and not think about it Um, and as they just try and Uh, focus on the things I really wanted to achieve and do. And so I really wanted to throw myself into my studies. I wanted to go to university. I wanted to be able to be good at all the things I did. Um, And for me, those were really important things.
2: And once you got to university, once you achieved those things, what happened then?
4: So I I essentially carried on with ignoring uh, my sexuality. So I had nothing to do with the LGBT society at the time, for example. Uh, if anybody was remotely what I thought gay I would stay away from it move away from it so clearly within me subconsciously I was trying to resist something that I wasn't happy with confronting at the time Um, and then I did end up getting married um, and initially it was a happy marriage um we how old were you when you got so married? so very young 22 22 but as i say this is all in the context of um an asian expectation absolutely you, you've, you know you've been to university yeah. um, if my grandmother had a way she would have got, had been married at 16 or 17. yes um you know and that wasn't going to happen and my mom was adamant that was not going to happen um so you know so it felt as though I'd been to university. There was no excuse now. I had to agree to get married. So I was introduced to a, a girl, um, and we got on well, and we decided. So it that, was arranged marriage. Yeah. So wow. we, so we decided that um, you know we were going to we would get married to each other. Um, and initially, it, it was a good relationship, um, and I suppose it changed over time. Um, we, we, it was a happy relationship up until the point we had kids. Okay. And then our differences sort of... I'm really going to hold you, you there because I
2: really want to hear more about this. But okay. I want to talk a little bit more about social expectation because I feel as a generation of men, I'm 57, 59, of a certain age. <laughs> 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 but the notion of social expectation was, was, was very heavy you know it was an expectation I was the oldest of four boys so my mother was imagining it's like a it's like a bloody trollop novel one was going to go in the army one was going to become <laughs> a vicar one was going to become a doctor and the other one was going to become I don't know a like kind of wicked entrepreneur and weirdly enough we're all highly overeducated. you know both my brother and I went to Oxford and my brother's now a forensic psychiatrist who deal- specializes he um, specializes in quite high, prof- high profile cases so again like you there was this real emphasis on working, doing well, doing well academically to start well, wanting to please parents, even though, to be honest, and I don't know what Alex feels about this, I feel my parents basically gave up bringing me up when they sent me to boarding school. From 11, my parents were not the most important part of my life because my peer group, the masters at school, what was happening there, one of the terrible things that boarding school teaches you is how to lie. I was very good at being naughty at school and lying about it. The only time I was ever caned was when I'd stole a dirty book from Sainsbury's, a book by Zaviera Hollander called The Best Part of a Man. (laughs) And for me, being whipped by the headmaster was actually quite cool because it gave me kind of, you know, a kind of uh, honour amongst thieves. But it was the embarrassment of the book that brought the shame, weirdly enough, even though it was a straight book. Anyway, social expectation. How about you, Alex?
0: Yeah, I think did you feel yeah, it very strongly? Yeah, I can really identify with the expectation of parents. They send you to an expensive school. There's a guilt thing about money. There's an expectation of what you will do because you'll do O levels, then A levels, yeah. then go to university, then you'll get a job. Um, I've tried not to do that with my own kids, and and that's sort of worked and not worked in strange ways. Um, but the there's also the cultural expectations of what you you're, you're sort of little tiny culture of your own family and the culture of the groups you, you sort of get involved in. So certainly I identify with de- uh, um, Deep about the um, the sort of faith aspect was, you, you know, you get married, then you have children. So you get married, then you have sex. You get married and everything's okay. You've ticked a box, somehow you're safe and you're meeting everyone's expectations. So, when you so got, they don't look at you too closely. Okay, so when you got married, did you have much yeah. sexual experience? None
2: wow absolutely none oh wow this is really Um, interesting so i was
0: 23 when i got married Um, so you were were
2: technically a virgin i was
0: technically a virgin and actually because the marriage wasn't very good sexually we didn't actually have sex for nine years wow so this enabled me not to really confront anything um so it it screwed me up big time as well but that's part of the sort of you you get these expectations then you stay in them because it's safe to stay in there
2: What was the story that you were telling yourself over those
0: nine years? Um, to, well, t- was, uh, to,
2: because it is, you know, obviously yeah. it's a, it's a, you know, it's it's a big,
0: big thing. It's nice to have a reason why you don't have to be sexually active if you're scared of being sexually active. But that conflicted terribly with a very strong sex drive. Yeah, So, so it's a Pandora's box. It's totally a Pandora's box. So I think it did a real number on my head. Ah. which didn't enable me to confront it because it was too big to confront. And if I'd confronted it then, I think I would have actually made all the decisions I made later in life and come out earlier, come out early, found relationships, enjoyed sex, and mm. not not gone down that route. But having gone down that route... Once you're on that conveyor belt, you're on that conveyor belt, and it's quite tough to get off. And so it, gets tougher, e- it gets tougher and tougher. Social expectations, it? yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a very big thing.
2: That's re- really interesting. I'd like to come back to that, uh, uh, and certainly when we talk about marriage in the next podcast, Paul, I really would like to hear more about that. Thank you, David. Yeah, social expectations. Social for expectations.
3: Um, Any or uh, well, um, formative years in the seventies. No homosexuality that I related oh God, to. No, absolutely. Uh, and then, of course, the 80s was the AIDS scare. So that, again, pushed yep. me back. Yeah. If I was going to come out of any closet. Don't die of ignorance. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah the big campaign. Uh, and I remember sitting in the pub talking about this with friends and we were all saying, oh, it could have ha- It could happen to any of us. It could happen to any of us. But I was I was trying to tell them it could happen to me more than it could happen to you. Yes. Do, do you know what I mean? So, um yeah, so, so the, expecta- the social aspect of keeping you in the closet and keeping you somewhere safe uh, is, is very significant. And, and I think perhaps today that more acceptance and more socially aware people are, it's a lot easier uh, for people to express themselves and be who they are. Uh, not that it's easy. It's easier. Um, yeah. it, I don't think it's ever been easy um, to, to play against the norm. Did your parents expect you to get get married and settle down? I don't. And have... I don't think so. I don't think they had any expectation. Of me. <laughs> I don't think. I don't, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know what they expected. I don't. I, I don't know whether they were happy with the way I, I turned out and uh, or not. I have no no
2: no idea. And. Uh, Um, Higher education, was that a way of exploring things for you or did you just knuckle down and...
3: No, I I had a secondary school education, left uh, school and went to work for my father who uh, uh, ran a couple of jeweller's shops. So I was planted in a job which, um, you know, gave me a bit of money at the end of the week and which which I spent down the pub. And uh...
2: And the expectation was that you would go into... Yeah, just,
3: yeah. The expectation I think was as long as you had a job, um, that was fine. It didn't matter what it was, um that was fine. Did you want to go to university? It, no, it never crossed my mind then. And I right. think the only people that did go to university in those days were people who had, you know, a, a career, who wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor or join a profession of something. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So for people like me, no. Yeah. I mean, I always wanted to be a rock star. That was my thing. Yeah. Well, you were halfway there, <laughs> weren't you? Well, yeah. 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 Did you learn
2: an instrument? Were you in a
3: band? No, I didn't have the patience. So, uh, you know, if I'd had the patience to do it and see it through, maybe. But uh, no, I didn't have the patience to do that. But writing's always been my thing. So yeah, that's what I do.
2: Great. Yeah. Arnett, social expectation for you? Yeah,
3: I, in terms of
1: family, I like David, I I'm, I'm really don't know if my family had my parents had any expectations at all. From about the age of 14, I completely disconnected from them and avoided going home apart from to sleep. And I'm not sure if I spoke to my dad much after the age of 14 ever again. Um, I went to university, but only because I wanted to go to university. It was a means of escape for me to get away from the family. And I got married to the third girl that I had any kind of relationship with um, at the age of 20 before my 21st birthday wow. and I, I really can recognize the sense of security that I got from being able to say I'm married and then at 23 when I have my first daughter being able to say I'm a father Uh, I trained as a teacher and going into schools and sometimes children would say, oh, you're gay, sir, and things like that to wind you up. And my defense was always, I'm married, I've got children. Mm. And so that certainly was a blanket for me to wrap around me. Uh, I, I, I... I look back through my childhood and I, you know, part of the going to church, part of being in the scouts, it was always about how do I put a mantle of respectability Mm -hmm. around me? And I I do think a lot of that was about trying to cover up the shame of what I felt that had happened with my dad, but also the fact that outside of what was happening with my dad, I was attracted to guys yeah, my, my experiences in Marks and Spencers in the men's underwear section I did enjoy that I liked to look at those images but I didn't allow myself to do that I could never acknowledge in any kind of positive way that that might be the case I can remember a couple of the boys at school at 16, 17, 18 that I thought were really, really hot yeah. and I shut all of that down Shut all of it down. I had a girlfriend for, for about a year when I was about 15, 16, and it's all part of this I have to show mm-hmm. the world that I am straight. It's like, a ha- it's
2: like having a house, and there are, do- there are rooms with doors that are locked. Yeah. Maybe, yes, Not only are they locked, they have a padlock on them as yeah. well, mm. and then you put another door on the outside, so mm. they're double locked.
3: Yeah. Um, but it is all, it's all unconscious yeah mm. it's exactly none exactly. of the there's no sort of thought process but obviously you build these facades yeah. and these walls yeah I have a rather strangely l- a
0: rather less positive image which is right. um, my own and so I'll share it because it may have, it, it may chime with other people uh, listening to this was that I felt that it wasn't just locking a door or locking a closet it was actually burying a person in a coffin and mm. then burying the coffin yeah and that when but was that a conscious? Do you n- think that, n- was no, that was later in life? That's, right. why, that's, that's what how, I you how you look back done. on it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But at the
2: time, we justify these things to ourselves. At and the then time, what David's saying, subtle little things. Aren't it's they? very, very clever. It's, it's, it's like it's steps. like the way you absorb homophobic messages. Um, you're absolutely right. Even though those doors are locked and double locked you kind of still felt okay about it. Because actually, you know what? I'm still doing well in my this work, academic. And you know, I've got this lovely girlfriend and you know, we can go on and talk about these, our relationships with our, with our partners in the second podcast. But this is very powerful, this notion of a, a place, a palace, mm. which mm. has got these, all these empty mm. rooms that have just been locked mm. down. But I'll tell you what, Nicholas, <clears throat> I, I, I think that
1: throughout all of my life, even in childhood, that those locked doors it was a bit like in Doctor Who, you know, you've got the monster we behind. We start John Pertwee, hopefully. And, <laughs> yeah, the image comes up a lot where you've got the monster or you've got the, the entity yeah. behind a locked door and the light or mm. the beams are radiating out. And, and it feels like throughout my, my early life that there was this thing behind me and something inside me knew it was there. Some it was it was seeping into me. And so I I had this sense of dissatisfaction or disquiet that was always there that that for years in my life I just grappled with.
2: Was there ever any sense any of you guys have a sense when you were young that you were about to be found out? I have spent days at school literally terrified that somebody was about to say you're gay and I've seen you doing this X, Y and Z. For you, was there any particular moments of, of sheer anxiety? You know, so the, the 16, wandering around in tears, you know, at this campsite, convinced I was going to have to tell my mother that I was gay, you know, and I knew that her response would be really negative. Was there any particular moments that you can recall that kind of um, symbolise how how desperate one
3: felt? I've I've Strangely enough, I've always felt that um, people will see what you present them with. Mm. So if you if you say, no, I'm not gay, then they'll believe it. And they, they just take what you tell them and what they see. And what's going on in your head mm. or in your bedroom or whatever is completely separate. And that's I think we, we do that. We compartmentalize things. Mm and we put it away and there's this idea of the the house and the locked doors Mm. we put it away and then you go out on stage and you present a version of yourself as Mm. we do in family situations at work or whatever there's all different versions again this is what Bowie was talking about presenting Mm. different characters in different situations so that's how you know I sort of uh, got into that uh, Mm. frame of mind but I I, I, for me it's
1: that I wasn't afraid that people were going to find out because now, as far as I was concerned, as far as I was concerned, I was not gay. Mm-hmm. I was straight. I'd never done anything okay. with anybody apart from the stuff that went on with my dad. But that was yeah. disconnected yeah. with being gay. Yeah. I, was I wasn't. Yeah, yeah. And, and I didn't actually acknowledge even to myself
0: that I was gay until pretty much the time that I came out. Absol- I'm absolutely the same. So you're, yeah. you two guys, and the that, same for me, yeah. same so for you. Yeah. Well, I had a massive mm. sense of alienation though, when I was, a, so I think I would connect that yeah. now. I actually thought that I wasn't human um, and that I, I believed I'd been adopted because I just didn't fit within myself. Mm. So I think those are the sort of psychological things that are going on, I identify yeah. with that. But I didn't. Um, I didn't, when I connected, I then did something yeah. about it. It's a
1: bit <laughs> that I, I find hardest to explain to people when I talk about, mm. people ask me, why have you took so long to actually come out? And it's because actually,
2: I didn't even understand it myself. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's interesting, there's a fantastic speech by a transvestite called Panty Bliss at the Dublin at the Peacock Theatre in Dublin, I really recommend it. Um, she was um, taken to court by Irish television for, um, for um, Oh, gosh, what was it for? Blasphemy, I think, because she talked about homophobia. I talked about the Catholic Church being homophobic. And in response, she made this extraordinary speech. And her central idea, which is one that I completely get, she stands up, she says, don't worry, everybody. You're homophobic. Everybody's homophobic. I'm homophobic. And she says that as gay people, we check ourselves. You're with a group of friends. A car comes down the road. Somebody leans out the door and shouts, faggot. You check yourself to make sure that you're not the most effeminate or the mo- that's most extreme. And it's, I just think that's such a brilliant observation. Mm-hmm. I went with my two best friends to America, this big trip, we were all 18, and we were, we were in California in Laguna Beach, you were staying, and my two friends, my dear, dear friends, both of whom are straight as a die, and we were, and, and literally some American rednecks, you know, lent out and started screaming homophobic abuse, and I was absolutely mortified, partly because they were, caught up in my issue
3: Mm.
2: you know and I was you know desperate to appear masculine but Mm. this notion of checking oneself for me it just became intolerable I felt that I was going to have a nervous breakdown to continually check that I was I was
3: behaving in a certain way way. now
2: for you it seems like that was a more that more natural that Mm. you but for me it was a continual struggle how about you Deep so when Did I, you feel you were having to check yourself? So
4: not really, because similar to Arnett, uh, I feel as though I'd, I'd never accepted who I was, and I didn't, didn't really know who I was, because if I'd ever had a thought in my mind... Uh, that pushed that was pushed away into this little box, which was locked away with lots of padlocks, and I never thought about it again. Extra doors, extra padlocks. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so, f- so that was just a phase I went through. I was attracted to women, girls at the time. So, for me, that was okay. I was going to marry Kylie Minogue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that might say more about my age. <laughs> <laughs> Darling, we're all going to marry Kylie Minogue. Get in line, bitch. <laughs> but, but but equally, there was nothing positive about about um, uh, LGBT issues at the time. I grew up at I was at school at a time when Section Twenty Eight was about absolutely. So you know, teachers weren't even allowed to talk about yeah. it. As a child, I thought you got AIDS if you were gay. So uh, and that mortified me. So that that put even extra padlocks on that little box because oh, I can't be like that because I don't mm-hmm. want to die of AIDS. Um, so there's all these so as a child there's all these terrifying things about being LGBT um, at, which is pushing you into that space of oh definitely that's not me uh, and we've talked about not connecting with people um, mm. um, and not having any visible role models um, and and that all pushes you into the space of no I really want to get educate myself I want to go to university I want to be the first person in my family to go to university yes. I want to get a job and again that was my escape from Getting out of having to go into my family business and stuff like that. So it was a, a mechanism for me to be able to stand on my own two feet Escaping and have some independence. From that world. Um, so, so yeah, so a lot of it was, uh, so really there was nothing for me to admit to myself because okay. I didn't admit I was gay.
2: Okay, final question for this podcast How, how did that impact on your sense of self worth? Because I, I imagine, and I, I, what Alex says strikes a chord, with if you don't think that you're human, you don't think you're worth anything, or at least that's how, that's how my mind would, 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 would process it. So how are you dealing with that? I mean, I, you know, naturally, you know, you attribute some of this to natural teenage angst, you know. <laughs> oh my God, nobody understands me, <clears throat> slam door, slam door. But I think underlying it, if you're receiving all these messages, these homophobic messages, uh, and, and there's a sense of, a, a huge sense of lack of self-worth building, and of course then suddenly marriage. It's a way out. It's the um, get out of jail card, isn't it? Anybody want to tell t- how they felt in themselves? Alex mentioned earlier about this sense of
1: disconnection, and I think I really get that. Um, I I felt really disconnected to so many of my friends. I I don't have connection with people from my childhood anymore at all because those whilst we had really good close friendships sort of it felt but somehow there was always an invisible wall that I created there and I can remember really sad lonely moments in my
2: childhood yeah but loneliness is overwhelming at times huge <laughs> yeah. yeah
1: to the point where i i really felt suicidal i can certainly understand i can certainly relate yeah. to that yeah. and that that actually traveled <laughs> through with me in in my life for, for a very long time um, but overwhelmingly so in those years between 14 to 20. that real sense of struggling to understand who I was to, to have any kind of sense of real deep connection to anybody but always as a response to that putting myself into organizations or positions of responsibilities, church scouts, I mentioned mm. earlier,
2: being useful, making yeah. a difference. I, I, I had to. Yeah. So seeking, seeking, so seeking seen, external, mm.
1: seeking external validation. Yes.
2: And, and in some I'm ways, still, that's still, I still, that's very much my, my weakness is that yeah. need to For be validation. useful to help people yeah. always putting myself forward. And I, I do relate that back to yeah. those feelings. Anybody else want to talk yeah. about? Yeah.
0: Um, you also sort of started that bit yeah. with the question of how how did how did how does self worth work out for us? And I can honestly say that that throughout the whole of my life, being very successful in business, being successful in the church, being you know married with two kids, nice house in a nice part of the country, um, self worth still wasn't there. And it mm-hmm. wasn't until I came out, connected the bits of myself that were disconnected, that I could then connect with. The, the reality of accepting self-worth, Absolutely. the reality of making yeah. genuine friendships and connections, the reality of liking who I am and being okay with who yeah. I am. And, and one of the nicest things somebody said to me, um, and it was in the church, and it was after I'd came, come out, and he'd also been in this position but had chosen to stay married and stay in the church. And so he was a great help to me at the time and he said to me in his lovely Birmingham accent, which I'll attempt to. Yeah, he, he said, I didn't like you before, but you're really nice now. <laughs> and he meant it in just a genuine way that he'd seen yeah. Yeah. that I'd become real. Yeah. And that. And I think that was where yeah. it finally clicked. Yeah. So, yeah, mm. big, big thing. Self-worth has never been there.
4: From from my perspective, it felt like my life was all mapped out for me. So I was ticking off things that I was supposed to do or expected to be doing. Um, my comfort blanket when I was younger, I guess, was at home, um, yeah. because my home life, for me, it, it was all mapped out, it was easy. Um, when I was outside, I was, it was a little bit more uncomfortable, because I was outside my comfort zone. Um, and I, I, I get the disconnect bit as well, because I the real good friendships I had really started when I went to university, and I lived away from home, yeah. When um, and it felt like I could be who I am, um, I could be a bit more for myself. Um, and didn't have to have that, uh, you know, dual identity of that, um, Punjabi home life and, uh, you know, the, the English real me that's outside. Um, so yeah, so I, I felt probably disconnection is probably quite a good one
3: when I was younger. Um, just a sense of being lost all through my teenagers. I was adopted as well. Oh, yes. So I've always had this not quite fitting in, who am I? Uh, so yeah i just felt lost basically that's that's the only way i can describe it and it's only really in the last well how many years i've actually uh, been out um that i've i've managed to find some stability within myself my you know my life is stable mm. i've you know got a job i you know do a bit of writing and and got a family, got two lovely kids and everything. But in myself, it's, it's only really the last few years that I've found who I am, I think.
2: Brilliant. I think that's a great way to end it. I think that Alex's note of authenticity is the word that I mm. feel. Becoming authentic mm. is a lovely way to end this particular podcast. And the next one, we're going to actually look in more detail at our marriages and how that worked out. I want to thank Arnott, David. I want to thank Deep and Alex And thank you from me, Nicholas.